You're listening to Depth the Field. This is your host, Rachel. We often think of hiring a photographer for the happy moments in our life. We want to memorialize the day we officially say yes to our partner, and we try to round up our kids just long enough for the photographer to snap a few photos while they're still young. Or perhaps we want to remember the birth of a new member as we welcome them into the family. But it's not often that we think to document the incredibly raw moments in between. My guest this week seeks to find the beautiful exchanges between loved ones in times of mourning. He uncovers the humanity and tenderness that is expressed as a child processes the death of a beloved grandparent, the supportive touch of a sibling on your shoulder in a difficult moment, or mixed feelings of joy and sadness as you reflect on just how much a friend has impacted your life. This week, I not only speak with Sydney-based funeral photographer John Slater about his work documenting families in these moments, but we take a look at his personal work and what it is he seeks out in a project. And now, my conversation with John Slater. Welcome to Depth the Field. I really appreciate you taking the time out to uh, chat with me for a little bit about your work. My pleasure. Always happy to talk about funeral photography. Yeah, it's such an interesting genre. I, you know, I found your work, I actually just thought to myself, you know, there's got to be, there's got to be funeral photography out there, but I hadn't seen it anywhere. So I just kind of Googled it and you and a few other people came up, but it didn't seem to be as common as I was expecting it to be. I'm wondering how, how you got introduced to it. I would love to say it was my idea, but it wasn't. I had, I'd gone to India and I came back and I designed a book around the images, none of which contained death. And I showed it to one of my neighbours and he was the one who said, I really want you to photograph my, uh, my favourite aunt's husband's funeral and turn it into a book. Um, I'm not really quite sure how he made that leap of logic, but he did. And... <laughs> When I did that funeral, I was hooked. I thought, this is extraordinary, because I'd done, you know, the conventional family photography, but nothing came close in terms of um, sincerity or or truth to, to that funeral for me. So I then I then took it up with a with a with a passion. So I guess your your first client came to you. You didn't you didn't have to seek it out at all. Um, no. How did you how did you find future clients? I initially thought the logical way would be to approach the funeral homes and essentially to induce them by a commission or whatever. But no matter how much I tried, they weren't interested. Hmm. And I think I think it's safe to say it's a very traditional industry and they don't like new ideas. And I also had a sense with some of them that every dollar they spent on a third party was a dollar less on themselves. Mm. There, was a, um, there seemed to be a reluctance to, to get in, involved with me. So then I've just left it up to my website to be my, my proponent. And whenever someone approaches me like you, I'm more than happy to talk about it. But I've got a bit of a conflict because I think in a way the, the power of the funeral photography is that people are so, so real. And the more they become aware that they're photographers at funerals, I think you risk ultimately turning funerals into performances for photography like weddings are generally now. Mm-hmm. Slightly conflicted about how much I want to promote funeral photography. I want to do it for me personally, but I think is that ultimately good for 
for humanity. It's, I, I don't think I'm damaging humanity at the moment, <laughs> but there's ultimately there's that risk, and I'm I'm wary of it. Yeah, for sure, and I'm sure that's a, a common sentiment. But I I was speaking with um, someone else actually on this show. And she did um, she did birth photography, but on the side she volunteered for a charity where she also photographed babies who who still you know stillborns um, with their families. And I mean, it, again, it, that was something that I had not thought of before. But I imagine that would be an incredible gift to the family to have. And I, and I feel the same way, I guess, about funeral photography is that it's it's a moment that you can kind of take over and capture for people because you're just not able to really, you know, think about it or observe it all. And that's not really in your intention anyway. So. Well, that's right. I, I recently had to give a talk to the Australian Funeral Celebrants Association. And in preparing for that talk, I reached out to a client who's... I'd photographed her um, mother's funeral in 2015 and she said the reason she wanted me there was in order to help her father who had Alzheimer's understand that his wife had died. Mm -hmm. In other words, the book of images would be evidence for the father that the mother wasn't somewhere, you know, in the garden, that she had died. Mm -hmm. And she, she wrote to me. And she said, when we were blind with grief at mum's funeral, you were our eyes. And I thought, wow, that's exactly the role that I want to play. And it's what you've just um, you know, previously summarised. Mm-hmm. It's this idea that, you know, you're so caught up in emotion and it's such an important event to recollect. And what, what I think concerns me with, with Anglo-Saxon funerals is that once the funeral's happened, that's it. There are no no memorial services. And so there's no opportunity to, to go over it again. It's all, you know, dead and buried, as it were. Excuse the pun. Mm-hmm. And I think, I think the role of the photography is somehow to, to create a memorial, to allow people to go back and, and reflect. Um, and it's, I don't know, I mean, I look, I look, the Vietnamese have an annual feast, Um, on the anniversary of of the death. The Greeks have, you know, 30 days and 90 days and six months and then, you know, yearly remembrance services. But we don't have anything and we need to somehow, I feel, start introducing traditions to give meaning to the West because I feel for Anglo-Saxon culture when I look at the leader of the free world at the moment. (laughs) We've got to do do something to, to... to bring back meaning in, in our in our worlds, mm-hmm. universal meaning, I should say, rather than this this descent into tribalism. Mm-hmm. And death, death is what we all have in common. Yeah, yeah. No, I I completely agree with you. I I, I share the same lament that uh, that our culture doesn't um, celebrate death or recognize it in the same way that um, many many other cultures do. Speaking of speaking of death culture, you you must be learning a lot about how different people process the passing of a loved one, either through your practice or just through, you know, your own research. What sorts of variations have you seen? 
I've seen a lot. And in, way, in a way, what I'm doing for my own funeral is sort of cherry picking everything that I've seen. So, for example, at Kenyan funerals, you will have mourners that sing to the body in front of the, front, in front of the um, congregation. And it's such a beautiful idea that you're honouring the deceased with song. I love that. In, when I do Buddhist funerals, what I love is that they will set aside maybe a day for the funeral and people just wander in and out of the chapel and they talk and they chat, but they've set aside a day of their lives, which isn't a, grand, a lot in the grand scheme of things, but I, don't, I, can't, I haven't worked in anywhere other than Australia, but it alarms me in Australia you have these the big funeral homes and they have funeral chapels adjacent to the crematorium. And typically a service lasts for an hour Mm. and Mm. only half an hour of that hour is actually for speech. A quarter of an hour is devoted to getting people getting in to the chapel and then a quarter of an hour is getting out. So it's like being at an airport queuing for for a plane. (laughs) And And when you leave, you then have to sort of push past all the the next group trying to get in. So that's what I've learned. It's this idea that actually dedicating a day, not just going to work, rushing to a funeral and then rushing back. I sort of haven't answered your question, but it's 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 these things that you learn from other cultures like the Kenyans and like the Buddhists that you think, gosh, we could do so much better than what we're doing. Um, There's so much potential for for a more colorful ritual. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, and I just don't know how, how we've got to this point where, where death is really seen as failure. And that seems to be what it's about. It's about hiding the evidence that, that someone has failed by dying. It's the ultimate, um, conclusion of, of the medical view on death. Yeah, that, uh, that's interesting because, there is a a small movement for uh, celebrations of life, if you will. Instead of a funeral, someone will have a celebration for life. And uh, a friend of mine went to one of these, and it was her, I think it was her partner's grandmother. And she was an incredibly lively person. And so, you know, everyone was just having a blast. And, you know, they did fun things. I think they brought... uh, balloons and maybe I'm not I'm not sure but the the idea behind it was to kind of celebrate and enjoy this person rather than not necessarily not mourn their passing but you know look at both sides Mm. and I and I and I'd like to focus more on that and I guess make us personally involved in 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 the planning of the funerals, because generally you're you know you're in a state of vulnerability, and you go to the funeral home, and they just give you a package, and it's not that human a package. Um, but you know the idea of celebrating is all about a uniquely personal experience, and I think we need to think more like that. But as long as we as long as we avoid thinking about death, we're not going to. Most people aren't going to have enough uh, resilience at the time of someone's death to actually plan a, a human um, celebration of, of that death. And so when you have clients that come to you, do you do you 
like what do you talk them through do you talk to them about your services and what they should expect from you etc do you get into some of the other funeral practices what what sorts of conversations are you having with your clients around the funerals almost none um because i just think that they've got so much on their plate mm. the last thing they want is an in-depth discussion with me and to an extent I, I know that celebrants the funeral celebrants for example are trying to to steer the families and i've, I've left that up to them I'm, I'm not saying to them i'm a funeral planner mm. in, t- in terms of my guidance, what I say to them is that during the service, I'll never organize any, any, any images. Um, they will solely be candid. But you might, at the wake, for example, want to consider group photos mm-hmm. uh, because at a wake it's a time when, you know, family have come, friends and family have come from all over the place mm-hmm. and they may never come together again. Yep. And so if you want group photos at the, at the wake, I'm more than happy to do them. But I'll leave it to you to initiate it. And if I think if I think it's appropriate, I'll go to the. I always ask for a designated family member who can sort of help me and guide me. And I'll go to that designated funeral uh, family and I'll say, well, it might be a good time now um, for the group photos. But I'll always leave it up to them. It's so I'm I'm, I'm not much of a guide, I'm afraid. Um, my intention is to be as low key as possible and make them understand that. Yeah, I won't disrupt and I won't organize them. It's really not about me. Um, I wonder, my, my, one of my first thoughts was uh, what, I mean, you know, you're obviously trying to, to stay under the radar, but someone's going to notice that you have a camera. What's your approach to that? Obviously, the family has hired you to take photos, but what about other people? Do they generally know that you're going to be there? That is that something that's left to the client to discuss with everyone who's coming, or how is that breached? I generally make a point of being with the, the close family and taking photos of them right at the beginning before everyone's filed into the, the, the church or the chapel. And that way, all the all the friends and family understand that I'm not this paparazzi stalking the proceedings, but I'm actually there at the invitation of the family. Mm. Sometimes I'm my name, my details are included in the order of service, which again confirms that I'm meant to be there. But I'm yeah, I definitely make a point of being seen with the family, so everyone else doesn't try and eject me. Mm. And I've only had one funeral where where my presence has been a problem and that was primarily because of family tensions mm-hmm. some of the family wanted me there and others didn't and and it was a bit like walking on eggshells but that's that's the only funeral where my presence has been an issue yeah that sounds like a tricky situation to navigate it was a nightmare it was a nightmare i'm wondering so do you have like a, a list of do's and don'ts or certain gear because I mean I I generally don't like to talk about gear but in terms of you know a camera being uh, obtrusive like do you have like do you work with a mirrorless or do you um, use telephoto lens like what do you have specific gear tailored to this type of photography or is it not as much of a a concern? Um, When I started in 2007 it was a big concern because 
only the top end cameras could actually handle low light. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm often shooting at you know 5600 ASA. I will not. I'll never use a flash inside a church, and so I have to shoot um, with a camera camera that doesn't have noise. And unfortunately, the cameras back then were loud. I mean, I had a Nikon D4. And it was awesome in low light, but it sounded like a machine gun. It was just horrendous. Um, <laughs> and so now I'm really considering the, the the third release of the Sony mirrorless cameras. They they shoot silently, mm-hmm. and that and their low noise performance is great. And so not to continue being a tech head, but it <laughs> it looks it's going to be the third. Um, version of their low light camera which i think is called the a7s i think it's called and that that may be released shortly and i think i'll probably go across if that's released um from nikon um because the cameras are silent and they're awesome in low light um in terms of the lenses i use i generally only have two bodies i'll have a a 24 millimeter lens on one and on the other one, I'll have the, the 70 to 200. I think that just gives me an incredible range. Um, I don't like the 24 to 70 lens on the Nikons at the moment because I think they're so intimidating. They're these enormous, it's like turning up with a Hummer. They're just these enormous <laughs> lenses and people think you're going to, I don't know. I, I, if I could, I'd just have a pancake lens with like a, a little Leica. Uh, just trying to, again, it's all about reducing the impact of me at at a funeral and the Nikon Pro bodies are that they're they're sort of designed for Iraq and they're not designed for a funeral. Um, so that's that's sort of my tech tech spiel. Yeah, no, that's that that's exactly what I was wondering because I have a, a Fuji X one hundred S and it's so silent and it's it goes down to about a two f stop. Um, yep. so it's not so bad and I just, I love it. I think the smaller and the less intimidating, the better I've really moved away from having a big body and, and lens to carry it. Plus I just don't want to carry it around, mm. but, um, it's, yeah, it's, it's hard work Yeah, with, with loads of kilos slung around your neck. Um, so you, you mentioned before that, that you have a book that you include with your, photography package uh do you want to explain that a little bit more all right the book is probably the most important thing i do i think it's actually far more important than the photography and i I say to people that you know i'm essentially i'm I'm sounding a little bit arrogant but i say that i I, i've created this industry which is not true because i think in the 1890s up to the 1930s there were loads of funeral photographers and then some for whatever reason it just disappeared um, from both America and, and Australia. Mm. But I say, to, I say to families, you know, I'm, I've, I've set up this industry and because I've set it up, I make the rules and the only rule is that the books are what the families want them to be. Nothing has to be in this book. I make suggestions about what can be in the book. For example, I say, you know, you can include obviously the funeral photos. You can also include... Um, things like the tributes and the eulogies. You can include the person's favourite poems. You can you can include you know sort of a a photobiography of the person. 
because often often there may be only one family album with photos of the person in it and there might be you know family all around the world so how can they access those images um i try and well the purpose of the book is 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 to be a permanent memorial um and so it's whatever whatever a family wants to create that permanent memorial is what's included in the book is that yeah. Sense? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. I I thought it was a beautiful idea. I hadn't um, I hadn't thought of it. And then when you laid it out, when I was reading about it, it it just made so much sense to me. But I and I really liked the idea of pulling the eulogies and and making it really personal as well. So, yeah, I was really curious about that. What kind of what kind of feedback have you been getting from your clients? The general feedback about the books is that they become more meaningful in time. Um, they, they, they used in a variety of ways. I think if, if, if the deceased is, is someone who's very old, the books will be ordered. And I've had up to sort of 14 books ordered at a time for the great grandkids to try and connect them to their great grandmother. Um, other people just use them, and, and they're small books. They're only eight inches by eight inches. I didn't want these intimidating sort of coffee table size books. They're just, they're just used to allow people to, to dip in and, and recollect the person. And, and no one's ever said these, these books are appalling. Um, I think they're all appreciated. Hmm. Do, you find, do you find this work to be... Um like emotionally laborious or hard to do, or do you find it almost reinvigorating? The, the British photographer Jane Bone would always faint at the sight of blood. But when she was photographing, she saw the world in black and white. And so she could photograph, you know, a scene in, a, in an operating theatre in a hospital and not faint. And it's the same, somehow the photography... Give, allows me to be dispassionate. I can just be quite objective. I mean, I, I have this mission, which is to sort of honour the person that's died. And so I sort of have carte blanche because of the role I, I perceive that I have. But that obviously stops at not intruding at all. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, oh, the, the only time I've ever really had an emotional connection was I photographed a funeral um, a woman rang me up and I went across to Perth, which is the other side of Australia, and I photographed her, her brother's funeral for her. And after the funeral, I went, I came back to Sydney and I, and I you know, the, the books, the books involve quite a lot of discussion. Um, so you, you build up a relationship with the person. And unfortunately, the, she then died a year later and her, her husband asked me to photograph her funeral. And that was quite a challenge for me because I, re I really respected her and I liked this woman. She was lovely. Um, so that was, that's the only time I've ever been sort of personally affected by what I do. No yeah. Normally I'm a stranger to the family. That sounds difficult. Yeah, well, it wasn't easy. Um, I wanted to ask, um, just back to when you're photographing different kinds of death rituals, do you do a little bit of research or do you just talk to the family and you're like, well, look, what are your, what are your boundaries? What should I know? 
what is important to to focus on here? In terms of meeting the quest of families, I always ask the family to fill out an online form and I ask them for the reasons for the funeral. And that sort of guides me as to what exactly they want. And if, if, if they have a funny surname, you know, I'll, I'll try and work out where they're from. And that'll also help me because I'll try and do some research. And when I, when I meet with a designated family member, I say to them, is there anything, is there anything, you know, out of the ordinary or are there people here um, that are really significant to the family that I should be aware of? So the amount of research is sort of limited. Um, it's really on the day. You think very hard on your feet. That's, that's also part of the reason I love it, because you're in the moment for such a long time, and that's quite exhilarating. Okay. Um, I don't have a very very strong understanding of, um, of Aboriginal culture, but I... From what I understand, there's there are guidelines to how you deal with those who have passed. I was just curious because I was like, oh, I wonder how like how you approach that. But um, well, in, in terms of Aboriginal funerals, there's a lot of the thing is, I, I mean, don't quote the exact numbers, but there are some. There, are, I think there's there, there were about 350 distinct Indigenous groups around Australia, and of those groups, some refused to have photography. But because whites are so bad at distinguishing between these groups, mm. they just assume the one rule of no photography applies to all of them. Mm. Like saying what's good for Bulgarians is good for people in Ireland. Right. It's just so there's a lot of ignorance. Um, if, if in doubt, just be a human and go from there. That's pretty much my fallback position. <laughs> no, that's that's a really good point and uh, and good advice. I wanted to I wanted to ask uh, about some of your personal projects as well because um, I I was looking at at some of those and it 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 seems to me that um, that a lot of your personal projects you, you seem to seek out like a story to tell or like to use your camera as a as a voice for perspectives that may, may be less noticed and I'm I'm just thinking of I mean the ones that that I saw on your site I think are uh, the demountable classrooms for example or here we we call these classrooms portables <laughs> um, yeah. the silent sea um, Anzac day the disappearance of women um, would you agree with that? How how do you feel about personal projects? What's your what's your aim? What do you what do you look for? What do I look for? Um, that's it's a big question. Sorry. <laughs> well, I, I get I'm very very I'm terribly bored with most photography because it's so repetitive. Everybody's just trying to be Cartier Bresson, and I sort of feel that generally the only way you can do new work is by exploiting technology. So it's technology which allows you to see things that other people haven't. Um, I'll sort of steer one, one, one project, for example, which sort of sums up 
this idea is is the project I had called Lost in Transit, which was photographing train commuters as they were going to work. And I did that as the train, you know, shot through at 40 or 50 kilometres an hour. And I was able to do it because I was shooting it, you know, up to 12,000 ASA. And I was capturing those unguarded moments um, through technology. But the reason I wanted to capture those unguarded moments is because I wanted to show how important it was a reaction to celebrity photography. And I wanted to show that the everyday person were, were human. They're, they're in this, in this, in our society, which has really seen better times. And they, 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 they feel, and yet somehow they're dismissed. We only focus on celebrities. And I think we should be focusing far more on, on the everyday person. So that, you know, the project like the disappearance of women, you know, once women hit their you know, mid forties, all of a sudden they're worthless. And I find this astonishing that we could just discard people. Um, so the disappearance of women, that's not so, so much caused by exploiting technological advances um, as lost in transit, but you're still using cameras in such a way that these images couldn't really have been um, taken before the highest, high ISO um, imagery. In terms of the, the demountable classrooms, I mean, I live in Australia, which is one of the, you know, it's like Canada. It's one of the wealthiest nations on, on the planet. And the demountable classrooms that I photographed are essentially short-term solutions to government-provided schools um, problems. And often these government schools were built in the 19, 1900s, and they're these beautiful, you know, brick buildings. They have so much dignity, and it's a, and it's a sign to the common man that their children are important. And if I look at the private schools in Sydney, they are astonishing in terms of their wealth. You know, it's not uncommon for a twenty million dollar um, music centre to be built in a school, but unfortunately, with government schools they're typically given demountable classrooms instead of $10 million buildings. And that's just a signal to the kids that they're worthless. And I find this particularly offensive when these government schools are in suburbs like Greenwich, the one I photographed, where the average house probably costs $2 million. And yet demountable classrooms are being built there. And that does my head in. Um, there was a there was a Gillard government led, uh, sorry, well the Gillard government which was the last Labor government led by um, uh, Gillard who placed enormous importance on building proper buildings for kids and she was pilloried and I, I hate that we need to signal to people the common man and woman and child that 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 they're important, um, and we're not doing that at the moment. I mean, look at the admiration for Trump. Um, I keep bashing Trump, and I'm very, okay. I'm, very envious, I'm very envious of your prime minister. But 
So my, my the projects that I take on are about celebrating the common person because I think they're being ignored and I don't know why. Well, I do know why, but I wish I wish we actually spent more time considering each other. It's very interesting getting a, to hear some of your perspective on, on this. I was kind of looking at your, your musings as you've labeled them. I don't know. It's kind of a blog-ish, I suppose. Um, yeah. And, Remind me. It's been a while since I probably wrote it. Oh, no, no. No, I was just going to comment really uh, generally that, that the style in which you seem to post it, a lot of them are very minimal, but I found that you kind of introduce something very briefly and just make a note on it or say, oh, this is this, and then present images. And and I don't think you really expla- explained your, your opinion a lot, uh, so verbally anyway. Obviously, your, your images spoke to themselves. And I wasn't sure, was that an intentional effort on your part to question your viewers or does that just happen to be your style actually you're now, you are now taking me back to my childhood <laughs> because whenever i would write anything in in english the teacher would say good start but elaborate <laughs> it's just part of me i don't elaborate and i and i probably should i'm not trying to provoke viewers it's just that i i don't elaborate so that, that's the basis of that it, it reminded me uh I asked because it reminded me of a of a teacher that I had for a class and and she she drove me nuts like I she was a great professor and and I really learned a lot from her class but one of the things that drove me nuts is that she would only ever really ask us questions I mean she'd teach us material but when we were discussing things she would never tell us what her opinion was straight straight out she'd always just ask us to you know, specify ours or why we are thinking that way. And I think it stimulates a more critical look at things because someone's not saying, oh, this is what I feel. They're saying, this is the thing. Mm. How do you feel about it? So I, I actually thought it was a really interesting way of, of blogging, I guess, if you will. Mm. You know, I, I don't think it's too successful. I think you're probably the first person who's ever actually commented on anything I've done. So. Oh. <laughs> Well, maybe, maybe my approach isn't ideal. I I certainly think it's interesting. Speaking of your 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 posts, I was actually quite happy to see this one in particular where you I think you posted a link to a, a video or an interview or something by Inta Rutka. Oh, she's lovely, real human being. Yeah. I looked up a presentation that she did after just to see, and she seems really incredibly humble and and interesting but back to back to what I was aiming at I guess you had posted how your photography is shaped by your personality and that's that's one of the questions I like to ask my guests so when I came across this I was fairly amused I guess I wanted to ask you what what your thoughts are on that like how do you find your personality influences or shapes the work that you do well, I, I've been grappling with myself my entire life. I think the more I focus on photography that interests me, the more I find out about myself. And I'm beginning to conclude that 
it, it all stems back to my childhood and my, my parents are still alive so I have to moderate what I'm saying but <laughs> essentially because I was a male I wasn't necessarily deemed to have as as many feelings as my two sisters mm. you know because I was a male I was treated in a certain way and I think a lot of my photography is just is about proving that I'm human and so by focusing on for example on moments of tenderness at a funeral it's proof that I'm aware of what kindness is so I I, I have these I'll, I'll call them female qualities so that's that's really what motivates me with a lot of my photography just to say I do actually have feelings even though I'm a male <laughs> wow that's that's so interesting. Is is that something you became aware of over time, as you said, or is that? No, you, well, it's like funeral photography. My neighbor tells me to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so I do it. And then I work, I, I try and understand why I'm responding to it. Mm. And, 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 and it's quite unclear to me. I know I, it's, it's quite compelling for me, but I don't know why. And then I start building up a, a series of images that resonate with me. And I think, well, what's, what's common to all these images? And then you start saying, well, actually, these images are all about me. <laughs> it's not about them. <laughs> and, and, that's, and then that's why you sort of think, well, I'm just trying to prove that I'm actually a human being. Um, that's, that's, what, that's what I'm learning from my photography. And, and I, then I start speculating as to why I need. Other people don't need to prove that they're human beings. What is it about me that makes me compelled to prove that and prove that I have so much in common with, with everyone else? And it's probably because I feel isolated from everyone else. And that's and photography is is, is a way of linking me to to humanity. Mm. It's. I mean, every, everyone uses photography in in different ways, and I suspect this is. This is what drives me. That's a really beautiful answer. Um, oh, it's, it's a bit daunting, Rachel. <laughs> <laughs> oh dear. No, I, I I think it's really really interesting, and I and I like I like the idea of of using photography to reflect on yourself and just sitting down and saying what is important to me what am I reacting to in these photos and why and what does that say about me and is it worth it at the end of the day um maybe those are those are I'm projecting now <laughs> but I'm wondering in regards to your photography in general what what has been the most worthwhile investment into your photography and that can be like money investment in time or effort if there's any one thing in particular that has really impacted your photography but in an investment that you've made um what's the investment well well the biggest investment i was in the corporate world and at the age of 40 i just threw it in i just thought you, you get one life so that was an amazing investment in myself and backing backing myself mm -hmm. another one is is buying these, you know, they're, they're, they're high-end cameras that can photograph in low light. So having enough self-confidence or enough understanding that you, you, you have to spend money on these cameras. 
Um, in terms of the projects, like the the Lost in Transit series, that that was a long project, and I, th I then had an exhibition because I had no idea whether anyone would ever want to see these images. Um, and you have an exhibition, and, and people start buying it, unhappy people that they don't know and put them on their walls. Is that it's an is that how you advertised it? <laughs> What's that? I said, is that how you advertised it? <laughs> no, but I, I was staggered that people actually could appreciate what I was trying to achieve mm. and to mm. the extent that they would hand over money. Um, so that was a huge investment for me because when, when you, you know, I'm not sure what it's like in Canada, but to have an exhibition, to have an ex exhibition by an art photographer in Sydney means you've got to pay everything yourself. And that exhibition, you know, cost, I don't know, $4,000 for all the printing and hiring of the gallery and promotion and everything else. And so it's a big investment um, when, you, when you don't think anyone's going to buy anything. And then you start thinking, this is just vanity publishing. Um, and when, so there's a lot of risk. And then all of a sudden people are buying images and all around the world people are saying, I, I appreciate what you're doing. And you think, oh, gosh. So that's... That that type of investment um, is really important. Taking it, taking, taking a risk, and then finding that people buy into what you're doing. And what so, what pushed you to have the exhibition? I was curious as to whether anyone else would actually appreciate what I was doing. And in a way, there's such hostility to photographers in in Sydney when you're photographing in the public space people look at you as if you're a terrorist and I mean it's it's the, the hostility sometimes is bizarre and I just wanted to prove that I wasn't a terrorist I was actually <laughs> I was undertaking a legitimate project um so that's that's that was one of the reasons but in Sydney we're you've got an amazing um what's 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 your photography festival in Canada called Oh, I forgot what it's called. It's it's awesome and it's so properly professionally run. Um, oh, um, well, we have contact coming up. That's uh, every May. There's a contact uh, photography festival, and uh, they pull people from all over and do events, mostly around Toronto. But that's not the one you're thinking of, hey? No, I think it is. Well, Sid Sydney has has a similar festival called Head On. And they focus on unknown photographers. And so I submitted my application to them and they took me up. And again, that was, that was an incredible experience. Um, they allowed me to have that festival uh, exhibition, Lost in Transit. So it's just, it's important finding out if people actually appreciate what you do. Oh, yeah. It helps a lot with the morale. <laughs> I just, I don't want to be one of these middle-aged white photographers that, just keep buying new cameras and no one ever sees their work. Um, it's That would be quite pointless for me. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I really appreciate the work that you've done. I've, I've had a lot of fun just doing research on the, the different areas that you've chosen to take a look at. And I wish I had time to ask you about all of them, but uh, maybe another time. But I'm wondering, how do you go about challenging yourself? I think 
by confronting my demons. I'm a bit of a coward. And I need to stop hiding and get out there. So it's it's understanding that I'm this frail little human being who just wants to be invisible and ultimately you've actually got to get out there. Um, so the project that I'm currently hiding from is well this is this is so Aboriginal Aboriginals in Australia are generally regarded as fair game for bash, bashing by typically right-wing politicians. Mm. And there's no sense that they're actually distinct and that they are co- they have cohesive communities. And I recently photographed an Aboriginal funeral where I was suddenly struck by how strong all the how strong their culture was. And I'm really interested. So the German photographer, August Sanders, was trying to encapsulate German society. And I'm very curious about the impact on a on a tribe of what it would be like for the entire tribe to be included in the one book. I think it would give them a much, I think it would enhance their sense of community that they were all together. There is the danger that I'm, I'm, I'm just collecting indigenous people, you know, this, this colonial idea. But if you can work with the people and give them power to choose what images will be in the book, I think that would be a fascinating project because it would, to their, it would enhance their community, and to the the community outside, they would have to reconsider their view on Aboriginals and stop generalising and start understanding that they're distinct cultures like like everyone you know every other nation on the planet. Mm. So that's that's a project that I'm currently hiding from because I don't want to be seen as this this mm-hmm. uh, colonial imposer. But it's one I, I think I should be doing. So that's that's how that's how I, I I'm fighting with myself. I I just got to get over myself and get out there and and make the suggestion and see if it see if it flies. Mm. I I would be very curious to to see that to see that project. Yeah, that's quite a point of contention. I I completely understand your um your hesitation in that mm. and. It reminds me of a a book. I can't remember the author. I was just listening to it. One of our um, our national radio uh, was doing a an interview with an Australian author, and he looked at the um, history between the Aboriginal peoples and the colonizers. And um, it was again the he he faced the same thing where he said, you know, it's quite contentious because here I am as this you know, white person going through and yeah, I'm, I'm interviewing people and I'm getting everyone's perspective, but at the end of the day, I'm still pretty white. And um, who am I to, to look at this history? And from, I mean, what he was saying and what pushed him to do it was that he, he was like, well, 
it's also my history. You know, we're, I'm part of it, obviously, a very different, from a very different perspective, very different experience. But he, he just approached it and was like, I'm going to just try and give as much respect as I can and as much voice as I can. But this is a project that means a lot to me and I'm part of it. So I'm going to do it. And I, I, I'd be curious to read it, but I, but I definitely, it's, it's, a, <laughs> it's a difficult subject for sure. Um, to, to grapple with one way or the other. And at the end of the day, there's no black or white. It's pretty great <laughs> in my personal opinion, but. I, I agree. I think it's, but again, I, I should stop hiding. I mean, you're the first person I've talked to really about it. I <laughs> well, should actually go to the community now and say, well, let's talk and see whether we, we, we can come up with something that will work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's, that's me dealing with my demons and fearing rejection. And it's like, well, it shouldn't be. I shouldn't regard it as personal. Be 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 brave. It's what everyone should be, including me. <laughs> that that is uh, that is very good advice, uh, especially for me. I'm I'm <laughs> also very just you know anxious anxious about so many things and you know different projects here and there and and all that jazz. So I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna take that to heart, but. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I wanted to ask. Uh, just... Maybe if you're on public radio, then you should pledge a, a project, pledge committing to a project, and that way everyone can hold you to account, like, like I've just done. <laughs> That's true. Okay, we're in this together. Uh, oh man, I have so many. I have so many projects. Uh, I'm trying to think of one that would actually be quite uh, vulnerable. I think that the projects that I have in mind are are uh, slightly less vulnerable, but I I'll think of one. Um, I wanted to ask you, uh, I, so I ask, I ask every photographer this and I, I'm just curious if you were to, if, let's say you were sitting in, in my chair and, uh, you were interviewing a photographer whose work you admired, what would you, what would you want to ask them about? Okay. I mean, probably one of the photographers I admire most is David Goldblatt. I'm not familiar with, yeah. He's a South African photographer. I think he's now in his, he's probably 90 or 91 years old, but he, he, he just had an amazing understanding of how abnormal the Afrikaners were and just photographed them in such a way that you, you and my problem is I, I don't really want to, I don't really want to talk to David Goldblatt because his imagery is so brilliant. I don't need to ask him anything. I just need to see more of his work. So <laughs> I guess my question would be, you know, please, you know, what, what can I do to make you work more so I can see more of your work? Ah. So, so I'm sort of, I, I, I wouldn't need to ask anyone. I don't, I don't need to meet photographers. I need to see that work. That, yeah. That's really um, where, where I'm at. That's Awesome, that's a great. Well, it's answer. not it's sort of it's sort of challenging what you're doing now, but oh, not at all. I mean, I I'm doing this for my own pleasure. As as I've said to many people, this is this project that I'm doing, interviewing photographers is is a personal excuse to just talk with people and ask them how they do what they do, what they see, why, and to hear. Frankly, it's been quite refreshing and very interesting. So I'm not. <laughs> I uh, I'm not swayed by <laughs> anyone's uh, uh, interest, you know, one way or the other. But 
I, I so we should finish up by um, do you want to tell us a little bit about where people can find you, how you share your work? Okay, I have well the two the two websites you mentioned are. Uh, the one is my sort of personal one, which is johnslater.com, and that's john, S-L-A-Y-T-O-R.com. And in that, you'll see my favourite photographers, and that's a way of learning more, for example, about David Goldblatt, who is definitely worthwhile. Um, be awesome if you could interview him, even though I wouldn't be interested in what he'd say. I'd definitely listen <laughs> in. And the other one is thefuneralphotographer.com.au which is my funeral photography. I'm, I'm sort of restricted in, in what images I can release for funeral photography um, based on the consent of the families. So most, most, I mean, very little of my work is actually on my website. Um, but there's Helen Whitney is about to release a film called Into the Night. In fact, she, I think she's released it, but it's going on to, P, it's being shown on PBS, I think on the 26th of March. And there's one image from my website, which is a little girl standing, you know, in a pool of light during a funeral service, and that's being that's that's part of this documentary that Helen Whitney's um, doing. So that's that's one image you may see in more than one place. Interesting. That sounds familiar. Well, thank you so so much. Um, I really appreciate your your time and uh, your perspective. It was really nice having you in to chat with me today thank so you. thank you for inviting me i appreciate it oh my pleasure and that was my conversation with john slater you can find his personal work at johnslater.com that's j-o-h-n-s-l-a-y-t-o-r.com or his funeral work at thefuneralphotographer.com.au if you want to listen to this interview again be sure to find it on my personal page rachelhunterbrown.com that's R-A-C-H-A-E-L-H-U-N-T-E-R-B-R-O-W-N dot com, where you'll find links to his work, as well as a link to the photographer he just mentioned. You can always follow along on my Facebook page as well, at CFRC Depth of Field. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next Saturday. <laughs>